0: Well, this morning we're going to look at the Emmanuel process and most of you are at least somewhat familiar with it, but I wanted to take time to just walk back and walk us through it in a way that just sets the stage in part because not this Wednesday, but starting a week from Wednesday, February 9th, we are going to begin doing the Emmanuel process in a groups in small groups of 3 or 4 people each the first Wednesday night of each month starting in a week and a half. I know that's actually the second week, but we kind of got put back behind a week because of the snowstorm. But anyway, this morning what I want us to do is I want us to just walk through the Emanuel process. And my background on it is that three and a half years ago, I had the privilege of going to my first Thrive conference where I was introduced to the Emanuel process for the first time. At first, I got to tell you, it was a really frustrating experience for me. And I think there's several reasons for that. One is that I had just some of the similar blockages that other people do. And I think, too, it was frustrating for me because God wanted me to be able to identify with those of you who found it frustrating to begin with. All right? Um, But part of why it didn't work for me, why I didn't think it was working for me initially, was because I'd misunderstood part of how it works. And then after a brief conversation with Dr. Jim Wilder, uh, the rest of the week just took off for me in amazing ways. In fact, the Emanuel Places sermon that's on our website is just really my story of what all I heard and experienced that way. Actually, not even all of it, just a portion of what I heard and experienced that week. But then since that time, I've done a lot of work trying to understand it more. I went to a four-day training seminar with Dr. Carl Lehman, as well as... Um, just kind of weaseled my way into an opportunity to do a mentoring group with Dr. Carl Lehman. And with that, I actually was on his couch. The videos you see, I've been on that couch. And so there's just been an amazing journey that I continue to dive into. But what I find with it over and over is that I continue to be amazed by its simplicity and its power. And so this morning I've set aside this time to walk us through the process because I believe that the Emmanuel process is one of the most effective tools for dealing with trauma and attachment pain and for most importantly for building greater intimacy with Jesus. And so let me just kind of start from the beginning. Dr. Carl Lehman, first thing you need to know about him is he is a wonderfully godly Christian man. Um, When you hear him teach, when you're around him, one of the things that has always so impressed me about Carl is just how tender his heart is towards the hurts that people carry. And how tender his heart is, you know, it's almost, I've never been around Carl and heard him tell stories of his sessions that I don't see him just have trouble telling the stories because he just gets so choked up as he's telling them as he's talking about these people who come in with these broken places and find a connection with Jesus and find that intimacy with him. But anyway, Dr. Carl Lehman is the one who's really refined this Emmanuel process. And what you also need to know about Carl, secondly, is that Carl is a board-certified psychiatrist. And it's interesting for us, he grew up down in, down in central, south-central Kansas And came here and did his med school at KU Med. So he's kind of from our area. But Carl Lehman is a brilliant man, brilliant psychiatrist. But he's really gone completely away from his, quote, psychiatry. And the reason is, is because he's found the Emmanuel process to be so much more powerful in helping people heal. Now, what you need to know is that it was a long journey that got Carl to the place of discovering the Emmanuel process. Carl has used everything from your traditional psychiatry medical approach with all the drugs, etc., to theophastic prayer, to, to psychoanalysis. He's tried it all. And where he's ended up is with this process that he calls the Emanuel process. In fact, it's interesting that he describes the way that he landed here or first started diving into the Emmanuel process was because of one particular client he was working with. He said they had had over 50 sessions together, and he felt like he was making no progress. And so finally, in one session, just in frustration, he says, I don't know what to do. And his client, I think if I remember the story right, she said, well, how about we ask Jesus? (laughs) Oh, there's an original idea. (laughs) And so they asked Jesus what to do, and that began this journey that will make more sense as we get into it. But the first thing you need to understand about the Emmanuel process is that it comes, the reason it even has this name, is that it comes from one of Jesus' names, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel simply means God with us. And Dr. Lehman bases the Emmanuel process in part on Jesus' word in part on Jesus' name, God with us, and in part on his words at the end of Matthew's gospel. If you remember, as Jesus ascends into heaven, he says this. He says, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Okay? And so from this verse, I mean Jesus has promised He's with us always to the end of the age. The age hasn't ended, we're still here. So that tells me that he's with us. So from this verse and from others, we can intellectually know that Jesus is always with us. And I believe, take it one step further, we can also know that he's always glad as glad can be to be with us. His last words on the cross were, it is finished. Paul in Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus. So not only is he always with us, but he's not mad at us. He's not disappointed in us. He's glad to be with us. Now, unfortunately, for for most of us, that that is not our experience. That is not what we have known to this point. We have all sorts of filters and distortions that we'll kind of touch on a little bit this morning, but not really get to, that cause us to see him improperly. We see him like we see our critical earthly father. Or we see him like other authority figures in our life that's messed with our heads, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so we have all these distorted images of who God is. But the Emmanuel process is one of the ways that we can remove those layers of distortion. Because you see, unfortunately, we are often like the disciples on the road to Emmaus who have Jesus with us but have no awareness of his presence. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to begin in Luke chapter 24, and I want us to look at this story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus, because that's really what sets the stage for a lot of what we're going to do here. So Luke 24, starting in verse 13, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? All right, as we look at this passage, I want to just start with some key verses. And foundationally, kind of almost a premise, before you get to Luke 24, we must put it under the umbrella of Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus again said, And surely I am with you always. Okay, and then just the reminder again, from this verse and others, we can intellectually know that Jesus is always with us. But unfortunately, we have a lot in common with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. All right? And so I want us to just make some notes about this passage I just read. And that is that gospel, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus engaged these two disciples in a lengthy conversation as they were leaving Jerusalem. In fact, even just this morning as I was reading it, it hadn't really stood out to me before that they were on a seven-mile walk. You know, we don't know exactly what point Jesus joined them, but if he joined them fairly early, a seven-mile walk is a pretty good time for conversation, all right? But the whole time that they're in this conversation with Jesus, they have no idea who he is, I mean, think about that. How strange is that? They're walking, they're talking to this stranger. They have no clue that he's Jesus. Until when you get to verse 31, it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Okay? That's the first key verse here in Luke 24. All right? Second key, well, let me me explain that. Something didn't work right on my slide, but verse 31 says they didn't recognize him until their eyes were opened, all right? Now, we can wrestle with that in a lot of ways. Why didn't they recognize him? Why didn't they see him? If they were disciples, you know, how could they not recognize Jesus? Well, we'll get into that in a second. Because the next key verse I want you to see is verse 16. Luke specifically tells his readers they were kept from recognizing him. Okay? It wasn't just that they didn't recognize him, it says that they were kept. There was some power, some force, something at work preventing them from seeing Jesus. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But then another critical part of this story is verse 32, where the disciples ask, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opening the, opened the scriptures to us? All right, what I want you to see here is that once their eyes were opened, they could look back on the experience and recognize that they felt something different when Jesus was beside them. His explanations awakened something deep within their hearts, As they re- and as they reflected on it, it could only be described as our hearts were burning within us. And so from these passages, what I want us to see it's several foundational principles for the Emmanuel process. All right? And the first, a common, if not the most common experience for Christians, is having Jesus with us, but being unaware or oblivious to his presence. All right? And what I mean by that is that we may know intellectually that Jesus is with us at all times. But experientially, we have little or no sense of his presence. All right? I I've had this sense for you know pretty much as long as I can remember in my Christian walk. And what I mean by that is that I have this sense, and you know, one of the places where I've where I've always experienced Jesus' presence the most is in writing sermons and preaching. And so in that place, there's, there's often been the sense that Jesus is with me, but it's often been very vague. And then there's other times, which I would say 90%, you know, 99% of my, the rest of my experience prior to the Emanuel process, there was just this sense that I was going about life and that's all I was doing. And, the, and there was also a sense that the problem was that I wasn't praying enough. I wasn't reading scripture enough. I wasn't doing enough of the, quote, religious things. And if I were, then I would be more spiritual and I'd have a greater sense of his presence. I don't know if any of you can relate to that or not, but that's at least me. All right? I spent most of my adult Christian life intellectually knowing that Jesus was with me without a single clue of his presence. I was just like the the disciples on the road of Emmaus, walking through life oblivious to his presence. But then second, we are often prevented from perceiving his presence by things of which we are completely unaware. Again, Luke doesn't tell us what prevented the disciples from recognizing Jesus. Now, I can suppose a few things. You know, it could have simply been the fact that they believed Jesus was dead and weren't looking for him. Okay? Any of you ever have the experience of running into someone in a strange context and you don't recognize them at first? You know, I I do that quite often. I'll run into somebody that I know from group or from here or from whatever and I'm a long ways away and it's just kind of like one of those double takes. Uh Uh-huh, what are you doing here? You know, at first it's like, why do you look familiar? And then it's, oh, I know you. You know, I think there could have been an element of that going on, because after all, if somebody's dead, you're not exactly looking for him, right? They'd heard the reports of his resurrection, but you could kind of tell from their story that I don't think they really believed them. So, you're not looking for a dead man walking around very often, all right? It may be that they were just so absorbed in themselves that they failed to look closely at the stranger walking beside them. Ever been in that place? Ever been troubled in mind? Ever had something really bothering you? And so you're just going about your business and you're, not just, you're just kind of oblivious to the people around you? Very possible. Alright? It may also be something spiritual. It may be that Satan, that Satan was doing something that was preventing them from perceiving Jesus. Or, on the other side of the coin... It may be that God was supernaturally keeping them from perceiving who He was until He was ready for them to perceive Him. All right? All of that is just conjecture. But I think it's good to wrestle with, and it's good to open those questions because I think we often have very similar things. There are many different reasons why we don't perceive Jesus' presence presence in certain places. And so as we look at the disciples, what we can see from this is that while we don't know the specific hindrances to their perception, we can see that Luke is very clear. They were kept from recognizing him. There was something at work preventing them from seeing him clearly. And the same thing happens in our lives as things outside of our awareness prevent us from recognizing Emmanuel's presence. And so therefore, that leads us to foundational principle number three. And that is that God must open our eyes in order for us to accurately perceive Jesus' presence. God must open our eyes. It's not about us figuring it out. It's not about us doing enough of the religious things. It's not about reading your Bible enough, saying the right prayer. It's about waiting and asking God to open our eyes. You see, the disciples didn't finally recognize Jesus because they added up all the information and came to the logical conclusion it was Him. No, they recognized Jesus because it says very specifically, their eyes were opened. And then once their eyes were opened, they were able to look back on their experience with him and recognize how their hearts came alive in his presence. Do you catch that phrase? Were not our hearts burning within us? You know, as they looked back on the experience of walking with Jesus, this stranger telling them, explaining to them the Old Testament Scripture, explaining to them how it all pointed to the Christ, explaining them how it all worked, then they thought back and they thought, you know, as he was telling that, there was just something within me that was on fire. I was eating it up. There was something in me that was coming alive. And the end result was the transformation of a memory... And most importantly, a deeper connection with Jesus. You see, prior to recognizing Jesus' presence, all they could perceive was a conversation with a stranger. But once they recognized him, they felt the empowerment and the thrill of being with Jesus. And I will say that the same, things happen, th- same thing happens in our lives when we allow God to open our eyes to see how Jesus, Emmanuel, is truly with us in any and every circumstance, even the very isolated and painful memories of our past. You see, if Scripture is true, if Jesus' promise in Matthew 28 twenty-eight twenty applies to you and me, then there has never been a time in your life or my life that Jesus was not with us. I want you to think about that for a moment. If Scripture is true, there has never been a moment, there has never been a day, there has never been a time when Jesus was not with me. Now, there are many, many times that I am oblivious to His presence, But my lack of awareness does not negate his actual presence. And yes, I know, even before, as I say that, some of you are thinking, well, how could he have been with me when I was being abused? How could he have been with me when yada, yada, yada? And we will address that, you know, a little bit today, but more so as we actually get into the process in the future. Okay? It does raise some difficult questions. But what I'll tell you is that it's been amazing to me, as I've done the Emmanuel process with people, how when, they, when Jesus opens their eyes to His presence, even in those painful places, even in those places where they were abused, it's amazing how transformational that is. It's interesting that I've never heard Jesus answer the question, Why? other than in the sense of it wasn't your fault. He doesn't take that part away. It's kind of one of those Job things, I think, where maybe the why is beyond our ability to comprehend. But it's amazing what happens when Jesus reveals himself to us in those painful places. You see, there has never been a moment in our lives where Jesus was not with us. And here is the amazing thing. Once we accurately perceive his presence, he begins transforming the mundane, the normal, and even the most painful and traumatic memories and experiences. All right? Once we perceive his presence, and I put that accurately because that's an important word. Because many times when I'm doing a manual prayer with people, they will perceive Jesus' presence, but they perceive Him in a critical mode. They perceive Him in some way that's that's from memory, from some, pro, some experience they've had with someone else. And until we get to that place where they accurately perceive Him, there's often an unrest, there's often even more agitation. But once they get to the place where they see Jesus accurately it's amazing the difference that that it makes and this has tremendous implications for our lives i mean think about it our worst behaviors our deepest plunges into sin are most often the result of our attempts to relieve pain you see in a form of idolatry we choose to medicate rather than to trust god that god can meet us in our pain and show us a different way. And so if we can begin to perceive Jesus' presence accurately in those places, then His presence and hearing Him speak His truth into our hearts brings an intimacy with Him and deep healing even into the places of our greatest traumas. All right? But here's what you need to know about that too. It's oftentimes... Where Jesus begins in the Emmanuel process is he usually begins in the very non traumatic places. And what I mean by that is that my experience with most people that I've done Emmanuel prayer with is he takes them to places that they just hadn't thought of before initially. And he reveals his presence in non threatening, non terrifying places so they can begin to identify and understand what it feels like to be in his presence. And so if any of you are sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to do this because I don't want to have to look at my pain, well, let me just encourage you, first of all, by saying that it doesn't begin there. But then secondly, what I want to encourage you with is that there is a time and a place to go to those painful places. And it's important as we talk about that to understand that Jesus will bring healing in those places as we walk with him, but it's also important that we understand a little bit about what those painful places are. And trauma, as we'll use, well, and I'll give you a definition of trauma in a minute, but what I want you to see first of all is that trauma comes in many different forms. And, And what I mean by that is that trauma is not always the big, bad, ugly, hairy, terrible things that we think of. You know, we hear of someone who was sexually abused as a child and we understand that that is great trauma. We hear of, you know, I'll give an illustration or two in a minute. We hear of those things and we, those register to us tra- as trauma. But many times our traumas are little things that we didn't, weren't able to comprehend or work through at the time. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But trauma comes in many different forms. And so what I want you to understand, first of all, is that the first type of trauma that makes sense to all of us is what we call type B trauma. And type B traumas are the bad things that happen to us. Okay, for example, a friend of mine had an alcoholic father who beat the daylights out of him with a crescent wrench when he was about 10 years old. All right, now it's easy for us to see why that is trauma. It's easy for us to see why that would leave both physical and emotional scars that would have very negative effects throughout his lifetime. Right? That's a type B trauma. It's a bad thing that happened to him. But the second type of trauma that we often miss is what we call type A trauma. And type A trauma stands for the absence of good things. And type A traumas are the results... Of our family of origin and others in our life being broken and not meeting our needs for relationship and connection and attachment. And this type of trauma is harder to recognize and even more difficult to heal. All right? And if you think it through, it makes sense. With a type B trauma, you have a specific memory of a specific time and event. My friend, for example, was able to go back into his memory, experience Jesus meeting him there, hear Jesus speak his truth to replace Satan's lies, and in a relatively short amount of time, he experienced tremendous healing. So much so that my friend can now easily talk about the event and even see how God has been in the process of redeeming his wounds incurred from that event. But type A traumas are very different. First of all, they're different because there generally isn't a specific time or memory to work with. After all, how can you miss what you have never had? And so, while, and while it's difficult to be cognitively aware of where the pain comes from, we still hurt. A great example of that is in the life model. Many, most, many of you have read that, but there's the story there of the woman, you know, one of Jim, I think is one of Jim Wilder's clients, that she talked about being in church one Sunday. And she was just in worship, everything was fine, and then she looked in the pew in front of her, and there was a little girl standing on the pew next to her father as they were singing. And she saw the father put his arm around her and just hold the daughter tight. And as she watched that, something just welled up within her and she started weeping. Why? Because she had just gotten in touch with a type A trauma. Because her father had never done that for her. And it was a longing of her heart to be loved that way. But she had never experienced it. Alright? Well, that's, what, that's one of the struggles we work with with type A traumas. Okay, we also hurt because of attachment pain that unfortunately I don't have time to go into this, me- this morning other than to remind us that we were created for life life in the garden of eden and in the garden of eden there was originally supposed to be no death or separation therefore anytime we bond with anyone we will experience pain when that relationship isn't what it was supposed to be or what it used to be that there is a reality that no one else can replace anyone that our hearts is attached to that our heart has attached to and that whenever there's a separation or whenever there's a break, whenever there is a loss of relationship or even a change of relationship, our hearts ache because of their absence and or the rift in the relationship. And those are very painful things. But the bottom line, however, is that trauma in all its forms has a very negative impact in our lives whenever we are not able to process through the pain. And so that leads me to the problem of unprocessed pain. And, you know, here's a hurdle for me here. I really need a couple hours to help us understand this point. You know, I thought, I really thought I could do it in one, but yesterday at the Men of Valor conference I found out that my 45 minutes was not even half enough. (laughs) All right. But, and just FYI, I will have, uh, assuming the recording came out alright from Men of Valor, I will have copies of those starting Wednesday at the Power of Joy. But for the sake of time, I want to boil it down to a few very basic things of what happens with pain that we have not processed. You see, what the brain does is the brain takes any painful event that we are not fully able to process and sets it aside. All right? It's like the brain says, this is too hot of a potato to handle, so I'm going to put it over here on the side, I'm going to put a rug over it, I'm going to sweep some dirt over it, and I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist. I'm going to let it cool off. The problem, however, is that when we set pain aside, it doesn't cool off and go away, it becomes toxic. You know, the old saying that time heals all wounds is absolutely, absolute rubbish. The reality is that the original pain that is set aside and buried ferments and the pressure builds. You know, the good analogy there is it's like a pressure cooker. You know, I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother would can beans and stuff. And so you'd walk in her house and you'd hear the... And of course, being a little boy, you know, being a boy, being a kid like Jonathan, you know, everything's everything's an adventure. So I hear that, I see that. So first thing I do is go up and stick my finger on it. Well, that that steam's a little bit warm, so I pull back, and then you have my grandmother shrieking, no, 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 because she's thinking I'm going to, you know, stop the steam from escaping, and what happens to a pressure cooker if the steam doesn't get out? It explodes. Hmm. Kind of sounds like some of the worst experiences in my life, where I have exploded, Or someone close to me has exploded, and I've suffered some of the pain of the shrapnel of the explosion. Because what's happened is that pain has been set aside, covered over, and the pressure has just built and built and built until it explodes. But usually what brings the explosion is a process that we call being triggered. Because you see, what happens is when old pain is set aside and it ferments over here for a while, then what happens is anything else that's happened remotely similar to it gets shoved in there as well. And then when something in our current present situation happens that's even remotely similar to the past, all of that comes rushing back. The original pain, the added pressure that's come with, de- with months, years, decades of fermenting, and the other pains that have been lumped in with it. And it comes flowing back in a powerful rush that brings great damage. And that is what it means to be triggered. But here's the critical thing. It's rare that we recognize the real origin of our pain. Think of it this way. Again, stealing an analogy from Dr. Carl Lehman. Imagine that I were a master criminal. And if I were a master criminal and wanted to commit the ultimate crime, you know what I would do? Sorry, John, but I'm going to pick on you a minute. But if I were going to commit the ultimate crime, I would commit the crime and find a way to frame John. You know why? Because if I frame John well enough... And he's arrested, tried, and convicted. What happens to all the clues once he's in jail? What do the detectives do with all the information they've gathered, all the subtle hints that might point to me? They put them in a file folder. They put them in a box. It gets shoved on a shelf some way, and everyone forgets about it. All right? And I'm home free to spend whatever loot I've committed my crime for. Sorry, John. <laughs> All right, exactly. Well, Dr. Carl Lehman asserts that there's a part of our brain that does the very same thing. He calls this part of our brain the verbal logical explainer. And I'll give a lot more depth of why he calls it that, but it's called the VLE for short. And the VLA works just this way. And what it does is it takes something, or usually more often, someone in our present and frames them for the pain in our past. Okay, let's just imagine this scenario, and I'm sure it's just purely hypothetical here and doesn't apply to anyone here in this room. But I've heard about people who are impacted the way I'm going to describe. Okay, just imagine that you grew up with a hypercritical father who seemed to always criticize you and point out your every mistake. Now imagine also that there were times his discipline crossed the line into verbal, emotional, or even physical abuse. Well, question, how did you handle it as a child? Well, most likely you learned how to compartmentalize. You learned how to stuff your pain over in this hole, cover it up, etc., etc., and move on. You went to school, you went to your activities, etc., church, etc., whatever else you were involved in, and you did your best to not think about it. But then fast forward 20 years. And what happens one day when you're in painting the bathroom and you've worked all morning, you worked really hard, you're doing the best job you can, you've taped everything off, you've got everything protected, you've got it just the way you want it, and then your wife comes in, she's been out running with the kids or whatever, and she comes in, and you're almost done, and she walks in and she says, oh, you, you missed this spot and this spot and this spot, and what's that splatter on the trim? Well... How do you respond? Well, many of us respond by just coming unglued at that point. You know, can't you see how hard I'm working? Can't you see how well I have protected everything? I mean, yeah, there's three spots I make. So I would have seen those. Okay? And so the scenario I mentioned hurts for all of us on some level. However, if you could measure it on a scale of 1 to 10... Especially if your wife had a smile on her face, was honestly trying to help you, and didn't intend to criticize, it probably should register somewhere around, maybe let's call it a 10. However, if it feels to you like a 99.5, then you can rest assured that what you feel in the moment has more to do with your old pain than it does with the current circumstance. And we call this being triggered. Something in my current situation has brought my old pain to the surface and it hurts. But see, now the problem is that my VLE has already convicted my wife and wants her to own and apologize, not just for her momentary insensitivity, but for the entire weight of the toxic, unprocessed pain from my past. Okay? Okay. That's why, even if she catches herself and says immediately, oh, honey, I'm so sorry for coming across as critical. The room looks great. You're doing a great job. Thanks for all your hard work. We may still erupt, accuse her of being hypercritical, and even think or say, you know, nothing I do is ever enough. Why do I even bother trying? But again, this is just hypothetical, mind you. And if we had time, I could give you many, many other examples that span the range of impact and response. But what I want you to see right now is how important it is for each of us to deal honestly with our past pain. Every single one of us has painful things from our past that we have not fully processed. And so that brings me to my last point on trauma, which is a working definition and that is that trauma is any experience that exceeds our capacity All right, and this is a critical point point. and this is why many of us are oblivious to our traumas we remember things we may even tell funny stories about times we got upset or hurt as a child but we dismiss them because when we look back on them without adult eyes they seem trivial well that was no big deal they didn't mean to do it however if you don't have the capacity to deal with something when when that something happened, it becomes trauma. And that trauma needs healing. That trauma then becomes a barrier between you and your relationship with Jesus. And it needs healing to restore that intimacy. Otherwise, it comes back over and over again. Again. Otherwise, it leads us to those places where we often overreact and respond in very sinful ways ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why the Emmanuel process can be so powerful. You see, when Jesus meets us in our pain, when he reveals his presence to us and then walks us into his light, he removes the toxicity of the old pain, which in turn brings great healing and freedom in the present. And so that's what we're talking about our goal is doing in the Emmanuel process. Is to remove the toxicity, to remove, to deal with the old pain so that it no longer prevents us from intimacy with God and intimacy in relationships with others. Well, so here's the basic steps of the process. And obviously there's much detail that we could add to each step and we'll be talking about that more in The Power of Joy and there's lots of good stuff on the layman's website for more detail. But the first step of the process is to simply recall a time of appreciation. Again, think about how biblical this is. How many commands in Scripture begin with the statement, Remember? How many times does God have His people build memorials to help them remember? You know, just interesting word study for you. Go to BibleGateway.com and type in the word remember and read the passages in Scripture. It is a powerful principle. In fact, what, think about our, what we do each Sunday in communion. It is remembering what God has done. So recall a time of appreciation. Um, Recall a time where God has met you. In prayer, ask Jesus to show you the times you have experienced His presence. Felt especially close to Him or have received or experienced something from Him for which you can be grateful. Uh, In other words, look for five-bar moments. And what I mean by five-bar moments is, you know, we all, you know, most of us have cell phones or at least deal with cell phones at times. You know, there's times like out at our house where you've got one bar and you're like, well, if I make this, if I hit sin, is this call going to actually go through? <laughs> and then there's times when you're right next to a cell tower, you've got five powers, five bars, and it's just crystal clear as a bell. Well, same thing's true in our lives. There are some moments where we have such clarity about our relationship with God that the signal is really strong and clear. So as you're trying to recall a time of appreciation, look for those times in your life where you just felt especially close to Jesus, where the communication with Him felt clear. It may have been a time of worship. It may have been a time of prayer. It may have been a time when you were on a walk. It may have been when your child was born. It may have been any number of different things. But look for one of those and recall it. And as he brings these things to your mind, take a few minutes to just simply soak in those thoughts and memories. Try to remember what you felt like, what happened, etc. If you're praying with someone, share your thoughts and feelings out loud. All right. If you're by yourself, then do it out loud anyway. There's something different that happens when we actually speak it. So, speak it out loud to Jesus. Dr. Lehman calls this a, quote, warming up time, as contemplating about and talking through appreciation helps helps to turn on the relational circuits in our brains and makes further connections with Jesus flow more easily. But then second, take some time to refresh your perception of His presence. In the context of appreciation, ask Jesus something to the effect of, Jesus, please refresh my perception of your presence and of my positive connection with you so that they can be real and living right now. And then speak aloud anything that comes to your mind and allow Jesus to strengthen your connection with Him. And then third, seek to perceive Jesus' presence. The next thing you do is to just ask Jesus, Jesus, would you please show me a time in my life where I'm now ready to perceive your presence? Just ask him to show you something. And for some, an image or a memory immediately appears. Others sometimes experience the frustration of receiving nothing. But if a memory appears, ask Jesus to show you his presence in that memory. Some see a visual representation of Jesus, while others simply have a sense that he is there. That was one of my problems with the Emmanuel process to begin with, is I heard people talking about seeing Jesus, and I couldn't see him anyplace. But I had this sense he was right behind me. And Jim was like, oh yeah, I've never really seen him, but but when you perceive his presence, that's what, what you work from. I'm like, oh, okay. But whether you see him or have a sense of just a perception of his presence... Receive both with thanksgiving and trust that Jesus can and will use the memory to draw you closer to himself. But then fourth, let me encourage you to stick with the process. If you draw a complete blank, or if you receive an image or a memory where you cannot sense Jesus' presence, ask him to show you what is preventing you from perceiving him. And this is the real critical question. Pray aloud. Pray pray aloud, Jesus, what is blocking me from perceiving your presence? Really, the Emmanuel process boils down to two simple questions most of the time. Jesus, where are you? And when you can't find him, Jesus, what is blocking me from perceiving your presence? Again, if an image comes to mind, ask Jesus about that image. And that is one of the neatest things about the process. You don't have to be afraid of anything. You just have to be open to the idea that Jesus wants to be with you. Now, if a frightening image comes to mind, ask Jesus if he wants you to pursue that image. And the reason I always want to put that in there is that that's often one of Satan's distractions. One of the ways that Satan tries to keep us from going down this path is he'll bring up the worst, scariest memory we can possibly imagine as a way of trying to intimidate us away from the process. And most of the time when I get people to ask that question, Jesus, is this really where you want me to go? Most of the time another image comes up. And then we go someplace else and it's really cool and neat. Occasionally, especially when there's good help and resources there, Jesus does take us into the really scary things. But if he does you can trust that you are now ready to face that memory. However, please do not try to move into extremely painful things unless you have a very clear sense of his presence and his leading. But you can trust that if he's leading you there, he has a way through it and isn't going to leave you forever stuck there. All right? Then fifth, allow Jesus to lead the process. If he takes you to another memory, then you can trust he knows what you need to see, hear, or remember. All right? It's also important to note that Jesus always knows exactly what your resources, capacity, and ability to work through something is. If he's really leading the process, you are completely safe, no matter how unsafe it may feel. And I say that because one of the interesting things is that at the manual training conference I was at a couple years ago with Carl, um, I ended up in a group with a couple who I had not, I just barely met, I didn't know anything about them, they didn't know anything about me, they didn't know what I did, and what happened was as Jim was guiding us and doing the initial part, it just really spelled out that we were supposed to work on her, It it wasn't that he said her, there was a big group of us, but the things he said, it was just very clearly that she was the one we were supposed to work on. And what was coming to her mind were some very traumatic childhood issues. And she was terrified because here was a complete stranger and she had no idea, she's like, I can't go here. But then she asked a few questions about what I do, and when I told her what I do and what our ministry is, she just went, oh, crud, I guess I really do have to go here. (laughs) And I tell you that because I'm 100% convinced that if someone else would have been the third person in their group who did not have the background and the ability to be able to hear those things without being triggered to be able to to, um, be in that difficult place that Jesus would not have brought that to the surface. He always knows our capacity and our resources and our time and space that we have available. So we can trust him to lead the process. It's also important to note that the goal of this prayer is not to get an answer for something, but to experience Jesus' incredible love and acceptance simply by experiencing more of his presence. So as memories, words, and images come to your mind, the thing you need to remember is just to continue to take them through the Jesus filter by asking the question, Jesus, what do you want to show me or say to me about this? And then sixth, filter out any lies. Since Romans Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus you can know that if something comes to your mind that, that, that is condemning in nature, it isn't from Jesus. It is an attack of the enemy, which you must dismiss. So instead of accepting it, ask Jesus to show you the truth that Satan is using this condemnation to try to prevent you from seeing. All right, You have to remember that every time Satan attacks, he attacks in order to try to protect something. So ironically, Satan's attacks become a diagnostic that allow us the opportunity to say, okay, Jesus, what is Satan afraid of me getting close to? But again, what you need to understand here is you don't have to figure it out. In fact, trying to figure it out is one of the quickest ways to derail the train and get off the path. We're not to try to figure it out. We are simply to trust To trust Jesus, to keep asking Him to take us on a journey of His revelation for what we're ready to know. To take us on a journey where we trust Him to open our minds to the reality that He wants to be with me. And then seventh, experience His love. Most people, if they stick with the process, sometimes it requires having someone help you. All right? Um, I know it took. I needed some help to get over some blockages. At times I, I do. It's, 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 it's amazing what another person or another couple of people praying with you, it's amazing how that can open things up. But most people, if they stick with the process, experience a memory or an image where they feel the presence of Jesus. And sometimes His presence takes us on a journey of touching old wounds, and sometimes He takes us to seemingly insignificant events. However, the common thread is He takes us on journeys to open the eyes of our hearts to, experience, to the experiential reality that He really likes being with us. And you know, most of us can quote John 3.16 or sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But all that's primarily intellectual knowledge in the left side of our brain. However, when we spend time with Jesus in a manual places, we begin to experience his love in ways that move us towards deeper and deeper connections with him. All right? And so the next, listen to Jesus. Once you have a connection with him, ask questions like Jesus. Is there anything... You want to say to me in this place? Jesus, who am I to you? Or Jesus, what is your heart towards me? Or Jesus, are you really glad to be with me? Ask him anything you would like to know and then linger in his presence. Don't be in a hurry to leave Emmanuel places. Enjoy your time with him. Stay, soak, ask more questions. Pay attention to how you feel as you sense His presence. Many many find they sense His presence, but realize there's still some distance. Don't be afraid to ask Jesus to come closer, to move into the room, to sit beside you, to come closer to feel His presence. Ask Him if you can experience more of Him in this place. And most importantly, when you think you are done, double-check by asking Jesus, Are we done? You know, for example, you may want to ask Jesus, is there anything else you want to show me or speak to me before I leave this place? And he may take you someplace more, or he may say something to the effect of, this is enough for now. I have more for you, but this is enough for now. And then finally, end with thanksgiving. End your time by thanking Jesus for what he has shown you. Close your time by praising Jesus for the experience, for the closeness you feel with Him, and for the truth He speaks to your heart. And folks, that is the process. And I really want to encourage you to come on Wednesday nights, The Power of Joy, and really begin to experience this more. To experience what it means to encounter Jesus, to have him open the eyes of your heart and meet you in many different places in your life. All right, I, I left out last thing. Don't give up. If you try a manual prayer and it didn't, if you've tried it and it didn't seem to go any place, try it again. Keep asking God to show you what is blocking you, and keep plugging away. Keep plugging away. Keep asking the questions. Jesus, where are you? And Jesus, what's preventing me from experiencing your presence? And we'd love for you to join us a week from Wednesday night. Whether you do power or joy or not, you're welcome to come on Emmanuel Nights. But we want to just experience more of what it means to be with Emmanuel. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you for being Emmanuel, for being a God who is always with us, for for always being glad to be with us. And Lord, I know that even as I say those things, that Satan is bringing up things for many of us about, well, there's no way he could have been here, there's no way he could have been with me then. And I just pray that you would give us the faith to begin to be open to the possibility. And to just begin to really seek you and to ask you to reveal your truth in those places. And I pray, Lord, I lift up the Power of Joyce class that we've started. And I praise you for the great start that that it has. But I pray that you would take us deeper and that you would just continue to use it to bless our lives and to bless other lives. And I pray especially, Lord, as we get ready for doing the Emmanuel process in a a week and a half, Lord, I just pray that you would go ahead of us and that that would be just a sweet time for many different people. And so, Lord, we just thank you for being a God who wants to be with us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.